The scripture for this morning's sermon is out of Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, The Temptation of Jesus. If you have your Bible, feel free to read along with me. Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Waterloo, Gettysburg, Thermopylae, Antietam, Iwo Jima, all famous sites of famous battles, right? Even in our own backyard here in Loudoun County, we have sites on which Civil War battles were fought. So in Leesburg, in October of 1861, the Battle of Ball's Bluff was waged. You can still go to, I think there's a park there now. In June of 1863, there was a cavalry engagement in Aldi, following with more fighting in Middleburg and Upperville. In 1864, the Confederate General Jubal Early was fired upon by Union soldiers in Purcellville and lost 54 soldiers as prisoners. This afternoon, if you brave the rain, you can head down to by the intersection of Main Street and Hatcher Avenue, the street that you turn on to go to the post office in Purcellville, and you'll see a historical signpost there to commemorate that occasion. It's crazy to think that the roads we travel to the supermarket and to work were once trodden by soldiers equipped for war, isn't it? It reminds us that even in our comfortable 21st century lives, we're confronted with a history of conflict and battle all around us. And as Christians, we know not only of physical conflict but spiritual conflict as well, right? So Paul in Ephesians 6 speaks of cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil. As Christians, this is not archaic nonsense that we've 
outgrown in our more modern age. No, we still believe that battles are waged in the spiritual realm as well as the physical. And this morning in the passage Ed just read for us, we see a sight of one of the greatest spiritual battles in the Bible. The sight is the wilderness. The battle is waged between Jesus and Satan. Immediately at the outset of Jesus' saving mission, he's been baptized, he's been commissioned by the Father, indwelled by the Spirit. Immediately now, Satan seeks to unravel it all. J.C. Ryle, the old Liverpool bishop of the 1800s, says the prince of this world would not give way to the prince of peace without a mighty struggle. So, in our study in Luke so far, Luke has brought us through the history of the births of Jesus and John the Baptist and then through the kind of preparatory years of their lives, and now we see Jesus. This is kind of a new stage in Luke, starting in January when we commence again after Advent, uh, of Jesus in his public ministry. And look how it begins here in Luke 4. He's confronted by the devil. So as usual, since we're a Baptist church, three points to focus on this morning. Jesus is led, Jesus is tempted, and Jesus is victorious. He's led, he's tempted, and he's victorious. So first, Jesus is led. This is a part that we might not look at. We might breeze over this to go to the temptations. But look at verse 1 with me. This is picking up right after chapter 3, verse 22, when Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan. And here we see that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He's been confirmed in his calling by the Father, and now in the power of that experience, Jesus leaves, and what happens? Well, he's led by the Spirit. So far, so good. Is he led by the Spirit into popularity, or or power, or prestige? Perhaps how some would expect the Messiah to be led? No. He's led in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He's led into suffering. So just as his baptism, which we saw a few weeks ago, was a way for him to identify with sinners, now he undergoes temptation as a way to identify with sinners, with you and with me. In the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, in Matthew 4 and Mark 1, we see companion descriptions of this event Mark goes so far as to say that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. This was the plan. Church, here we see again what we saw last week. The the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit bringing us a plan of deliverance, executing a plan of salvation from sin. So the Spirit has descended and indwelled Jesus, the man, And we'll be at work to guide and direct him, much like he works to guide and direct us who are in Christ. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we'll see the ministry of the Spirit to the person of Jesus Christ. But here, what's the Spirit doing? He's he's directing the itinerary of the Messiah so that he goes into suffering. Jesus' travel guide leading him into a time of testing. That shows that this is no mistake. This is God's plan. It's not Satan who's in charge of this. 
It's God. The Spirit is ultimately the one leading Jesus, not the devil in this text. So we'll talk about the devil taking Jesus up certain places. But we know the Spirit is the one who has led Jesus into the wilderness. So we need to see this first, church, before we look at the temptations themselves. We need to see that this is part of the plan. God, the sovereign architect of salvation is leaning his son to accomplish our salvation jesus is walking into a time of testing led by the spirit himself this testing uh, the devil's temptation will come where in the wilderness right the wilderness is a key theme repeated in this part of luke Church family, if you've been here for any number of months, do you, do you recall of late where we've seen the wilderness in our Sunday morning sermons? How about this verse? When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, but God led the people around by way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Yes, Exodus, which we studied and ended up last spring, that study. We, we saw in Exodus God lead his people, Israel, out of bondage in Egypt into the wilderness. On the way to the promised land, the wilderness was in part a time of testing for Israel, wasn't it? And as we continue reading in the Bible, in those first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, we get to the book of Numbers and we see Israel just continually fails to trust God. And they test God. And they try God. And so he disciplines them for 40 years in the wilderness. And now, church, look. Look at our passage. Jesus, the true Israel, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. This is no mistake. Will Jesus succeed? Will he be victorious? Or will he, like Israel, also give in to temptation? Will he grumble and look out for his own needs like Israel did? Or will he glorify God in heaven and resist temptation? Along with Exodus, we also see echoes of Genesis, right? Like we saw last week and, and earlier this morning when Jason read from Genesis 3. Uh, Jesus is coming into the wilderness as the true Adam to hear once more the whispers of the serpent. Will he be victorious? Or will he also give in to temptation? Will he believe the word of the devil or the word of God? Church, this is all God's plan to save sinners. This temptation is not merely Jesus at the mercy of, of Satan. This has been set up by God for a reason. To show that Jesus has come to be the second better Adam. And to put an end to the works of the devil. Jesus is led into the wilderness. So let's look at these temptations then. He's led into what? Jesus is tempted. He's tested. That's our second point. So there in the second half of verse 2 we read, And Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. That's the first temptation we see here in Luke's history. 
There, there are many temptations. We see that in verse 13. But here we get a glimpse of kind of three big tests for Jesus. And at first glance, this doesn't seem like much of a temptation, does it? And so we often think of being tempted to sin, right? But certainly using miraculous strength to get food when one is starving isn't sin, per se. Survival. What's the temptation here? Well, Satan addresses Jesus as the son of God. I don't think he's casting doubt on Jesus's identity. I think Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. But perhaps I think he's, he's instead tempting Jesus as the son of God to kind of exert some muscle, throw his weight around a little bit. I mean, it's been 40 days. Jesus is so weak. Don't you deserve a little refreshment, Jesus? Satan is suggesting, I think, that God has neglected Jesus. Maybe he's moved on to bigger and better things, and Jesus is going to have to kind of take matters into his own hands. Unlike the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus is, is being tempted to sort, sort of start wondering, does God really have my best in mind? Does God care? Is he at work? Satan is asking Jesus to doubt God's care and God's provision. How does Jesus respond? Satan is holding out the apple. He's saying, does God really care for you? Eat it. What harm will it do? Sounds like the words to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Back in Genesis 3, which we read earlier, the devil began his temptation by casting doubt on the word of God. And here he again casts doubt on the promise and character of God. His tactics haven't changed much. They worked the first time. Well, they worked the second. He's seeking to erode Jesus' trust in God. What we see in these temptations is sort of a, of a a battle of words, right? Satan says something. And then Jesus says, no, but God has said this. And then Satan says something. And then Jesus says, no, God has said this. It's lather, rinse, repeat. And that's the same sort of cycle of temptation we experience as Christians, isn't it? There's constantly a battle of words in our lives as we follow Jesus. Constantly the question, who are we going to believe here? I wonder, Christian, right now and during this week or maybe looking ahead to this week, where are you being tempted to doubt God's word to you, his promise to you? Maybe you doubt that he really is in control of your suffering when he says he is. Maybe you struggle to believe he loves you when he says he does and sent his son to show it. Maybe you find it hard to believe he's coming back when he promised he is. Well, Jesus responds to this war of words by quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 8. So all three of Jesus' responses to Satan in these temptations will come from Deuteronomy, which itself is a sermon from Moses to the people of Israel after 40 years of discipline in, you guessed it, the wilderness. 
Jesus, the true Israel, responds to Satan and says, It's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew's gospel continues that quote and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's that word that wins the war of words. Jesus affirms his trust in God's care and provision. So, verse 5, Satan goes back to the drawing board. The devil took Jesus up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. So, in this sort of flash of glory and power, Jesus, probably in a, in a vision of sorts, just sees all this earthly glory and splendor speed past his eyes. And Satan, who in some way, we see this in other places in Scripture, in some way, under God's will, exerts some sort of dominion over this world, promises that he's going to give authority to Jesus as well. But there's a catch. Verse 7. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I think of, of the Emperor Palpatine, right? Urging Luke Skywalker to come over to the dark side. You can have all this power. It's so much better. Come, come, come. But this is no small ask. Satan is asking Jesus to switch allegiance. I think there may also be another subtle temptation here as well. And that's the temptation to avoid suffering. Because we all know Jesus will, in the end, be given all rule and authority, right? We know that. Jesus knows that. But Satan is holding out perhaps the, the offer of glory without sacrifice. So one author puts it like this. He says, in essence, what the devil is offering to Jesus is a crown without a cross. Jesus' rule will come through God's plan, but Jesus knows God's plan includes the suffering of the cross. I wonder, Christian, if you've ever been tempted like this. I wonder if you've ever thought, maybe, especially in, in my kind of church upbringing and righteous exterior maybe maybe i can look like i'm following jesus maybe i can even believe like i'm following jesus without actually suffering with him that's the option held out to jesus skip out that part skip over that part receive glory all he has to do is stop worshiping god and worship another god satan so wants to be god doesn't he I mean, he tempts Jesus with glory just like he did Adam in the garden. He wants worship. But praise him, Jesus sees right through Satan's disguised offer. An offer I'm not even sure. It might have been a partial truth like Daryl was talking about earlier. I don't think he could have come through with it. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But Satan has one more tool in his toolbox. 
One more temptation in verse 9. Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Oh, I see what you're doing here. Jesus has used the word of God twice now. He said it's written twice to debunk Satan's argument. So now Satan's going to take a crack at it. Take a play out of Jesus' playbook. It's written. Satan uses scripture from Psalm 91, where God promises to those who take refuge in him that he will protect them. He will send his angels to care for them. But Satan, as he is good at doing even today, takes a wonderful scripture and twists it. Ultimately, really wanting Jesus to take refuge in him. He's using scripture to tempt Jesus to test God. It's a sobering warning to us, isn't it? Especially in this day and age where we hear so many different sermons and tweets and blogs from so many different Christians about so many different things, many of which are so helpful. But remember, church, just because someone uses the Bible to make an argument doesn't mean it's right. We need the Spirit of God to show us wisdom. We need the Spirit of God to give us clarity as we digest Scripture, both personally and as a church. This temptation is really wily, isn't it? I mean, Satan seems to imply that going through with this will actually bring glory to Jesus and maybe even glory to God. It'll show God's power. He's going to send his angels. But Jesus' response is revealing. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 again and says, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan is tempting Jesus to test his father. Not to trust his father. Not to submit to his father, but to test him. Back in Exodus 17, the people of Israel in the wilderness grumbled about God. And, and God provided water from the rock. Do you remember that? If you were here for that, it was a, a wonderful study in how the rock was Jesus and was hurt for his people's salvation. But we read at the end of that passage, Moses calling the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Maybe that's kind of like what Satan's doing with Jesus here. Jesus, maybe you should be asking that question too. Is, is the Lord with you or not? Satan's tempting Jesus to test whether God is present, but Jesus will not test his father. He will trust his father. He will not stand in the dock as a lawyer to grill God. He will rest in God's plan. So the temptations come to a close. And we come to our third and final point this morning. 
and that is that Jesus undergoes these temptations as the true Adam, the true Israel. But unlike the true Adam, or unlike the first Adam, unlike the first Israel, Jesus comes out victorious. Look in verse 13. That's the last verse of the passage. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Satan's beaten. Jesus had seen every temptation and he had resisted each and every one. Why? Because Jesus came to be the perfect Adam. To be the man Adam was meant to be. So he underwent the same testing Adam did and came out victorious. See, Jesus came not only to die. We focus a lot on the cross and well we should. Jesus came not only to rise again. We spent a lot of time on the resurrection and well we should. But Jesus came to live. To live the righteous lives we were meant to live. To undergo temptation that we undergo yet without sin. And think about it, Jesus' temptations were so much harder than Adam's, weren't they? I mean, Adam had the garden. Jesus had the wilderness. Adam had all sorts of succulent food filling his belly. Jesus was starving. Yet in that most intense test of faithfulness, Jesus passed where Adam had failed. He did it all so he could save sinners, so he could identify with us and save us from every single sin. It's worth looking there again at how Adam writes, or Luke writes, that Jesus endured every temptation from Satan. He saw Satan's temptations through to their highest pitch. You know, we so often give in to temptation when it reaches kind of like the one or the two on the temptation meter, right? Jesus never gave in. So that means he saw it all the way to where the meter reached its top and he beat it. Jesus not only faced temptations like we did, he faced them when they were so much more persuasive and he endured each one. This is our high priest. Every temptation faced. Every temptation victorious. Christian, don't believe the lie that somehow your temptations are unique to you. Look at Jesus. Your Savior was tempted like you are, yet without sin. Like Daryl read for us earlier from Hebrews, we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, how? In every respect, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What comfort this should bring the souls of the Christians in this room. When you fear exposing your sin to your Savior, you can know that he knows that sin already, and he has already been tempted by it and died for it. You draw close to a sympathetic high priest. I wonder, what are the temptations you hesitate to share with anyone else? Kind of like those Bible study prayer requests, right? You can go this far, but no further, else it gets awkward. What are the ones that you've 
you hesitate to share with anyone else. I wonder, have you shared them with Jesus? That's the start. He beckons you to draw near. After all, Hebrews continues and gives us application. The author of Hebrews says, in light of who Jesus is as our high priest, here's application, straight up application for you, church. Let us then with confidence draw nearer to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus was tempted on behalf of sinners and was victorious so that in our new life in him, we can now triumph over temptation as well through his strength, through the spirit within us. God promises that he will give us a way of escape. He promises he'll provide what we need. There's lots we can learn here. Jesus, the the biggest one, I think, is how Jesus models a key weapon in our battle against temptation, doesn't he? What is that? He, He uses scripture again and again. He uses God's word to wage war with the lusts of the flesh and the lies of the world and the deceitfulness of the enemy. It brings to mind the Apostle Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6. You know that passage where he talks about being strong in the Lord and and putting on the armor of God. And he says in part of that, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Christian, in your temptation, have you unsheathed your sword? Don't neglect the blade. Pray scripture. Memorize scripture to wage war against temptation. That's how Jesus did it. Indeed, there's a lot we can learn here about how to fight temptation as followers of Jesus. But church, we miss the point if we stop there. Look at the last phrase in verse 13. The devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. See, Satan wasn't done with Jesus. As Luke's gospel draws to an end, we see Satan try one more time to crush the Messiah on the cross. Jesus, of course, would be tempted over the next several years as he continued his ministry en route to the cross. But on the cross, he would finally have all the weight of sin and all the wrath of God poured on him. And he would hear the cries of the crowd mock him and tempt him. Come down off the cross. If you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, save yourself. It was kind of Satan's last temptation. Go the easy way, Jesus. And Jesus would again resist. For the glory of his Father and for the rescue of sinners. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know Jesus came not just to be a good example for us. He came to die for us. He came to bear every temptation, not just so we could become better people, 
resisting the scandalous sins Christians are so paranoid about committing, but to take the scandal on himself. It's good to fight temptation, but it's meaningless to fight temptation unless we realize that Jesus has fought it and won. What will we sing a moment in a moment about the tempter? We'll finish with a, the, the, a song that mentions the tempter. One line says, when the tempter would prevail, we'll just have to gut it out. No. When the tempter would prevail, we will look strong. Not really. Ultimately, when the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold us fast. Our hope, church, is not in our performance, but in Jesus' performance on our behalf. When we deserved God's judgment for our sin, Jesus took that judgment in our place, and he holds out an offer now that if we would repent of our sin and entrust in, trust in what he has done, we will be saved. We will be forgiven. We will be held fast. We will belong to him. If you're not a Christian here today, won't you turn to him? And brother and sister, Christian here today, you're united to this Jesus by faith. You're united to the victor. You're united to the winner of the battle. You're united to the one who never faltered. You belong to the one who holds you fast. The one who sympathizes with your weakness. The one who calls you to draw near. You belong to the one who suffered temptation like you do, yet without sin. So, where will you face temptation this week? Think about your agenda coming up. Where, where might you see, yeah, I can see that I'll have a temptation to anger in, on that day at that meeting. Or, or I will have kind of a recurring temptation to bitterness against members of my family who have wronged me. Or I will have temptation in, in, in that decision to, to be greedy to put wealth above God. Or, or I will falter in that temptation I know when I'm tired to give in to lust. Or, or when I get that news, I know that I will be tempted to disbelieve God's promises. Church, remember when those temptations come, yes, we fight them, but remember Jesus has the victory. Cling to him. Seek him. Use his word as, as that sword to fight while remembering the battle has been won. Jesus has come to be the second Adam, to be your representative, giving you his righteousness. Adam had a tree of life in the background as he was tempted. And Jesus knew a tree of death was coming where he would be hung. And yet Jesus died rose, swallowed death, and declared, victory is ours. So when you face temptation, Christian, run to Jesus. You've been saved from sin's death. You've been saved from God's judgment. You've been saved from temptation's grip. You've been welcomed into the arms of your Savior who has borne temptation for you, who has won the battle for you. Cling to Christ. 
because he clings to you, because he holds you fast. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. We don't believe this good news. How you not only died for us, but you lived the life we were supposed to live. You experienced so much struggle and and trial, more than we could ever know. You saw the temptation meter hit its top, and yet you resisted for us. We love you, second Adam. We love you, true Israel. We love you, Jesus Christ. And we confess, though, that we are weak. We confess that still at times temptation looks so attractive. Hold us fast until you return. Keep us. We thank you that ultimately, since your faith didn't fail, we can rest in you. Be with us now as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.